Hello and welcome to the Adventure Games Podcast. My name is Shorsha Dunbar and I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining me today for episode 16 of the Adventure Games Podcast. And today I am joined by Alasdair Beckett-King who is a comedian and developer of the Nelly Kutalat series, and he's worked on a few other games as well, including Unforeseen Incidents. And he's also one of the organizers of The Adventure X. And we speak about all of those things in our interview today, so very interesting interview coming up. But before, I just want to talk again about the some adventure games that have been released and announced in the past week or so. And first, I want to talk about Quantic Dream. They have announced release dates for their games on the Epic Store coming up in the summer. So Heavy Rain, the demo of that will arrive first on May 24th, and the full game will then be released on June 24th. Beyond Two Souls demo will be released on June 27th, and the full game will then land on Epic Store on July 22nd. Detroit Being Human, their latest game, the demo will be released sometime in the summer, and the full game will be released then sometime in the fall. So you can pre-order those games now with a discount on the Epic Games Store as well. And now just a few games that have been announced. First, the game Argonus and the Gods of Stone. <laughs> this is comes from the creators of the Shadowgate remake released a few years ago. And it pays homage to the great fantasy films of the 60s and 70s, and it's set within the world of ancient Greece. So you play as Argonos, a historian and cartographer, who awakes to find himself lost on strange shores. The Argo, famed ship of hero Jason and his Argonauts, has been pulled onto sharp rocks by Siren's song, and now lies shattered in shallow waters. When you discover the fate of your stalwart companions, you must make a deal with a goddess. Stop the blight that has been taken untold lives in return for safe passage home, or risk succumbing, succumbing to the bedevilment that stalks this isle. So this is a first-person adventure game where you discover the world of gods and monsters. And according to the developers, you solve intriguing in-world puzzles and unlock ancient mysteries. There is a cinematic score from the Shadowgate composer Rich Douglas, and you can also have 20 in-game Steam-based achievements to find and unlock. The special edition will also be available, and the game will be out on Steam later on in the summer. There are trailers on the game's website and a DLC as well, and more details about the game is on their website as well. The second game that has been announced is a game called Demons Never Lie by IndieBug. It's an indie game where even your soul is at stake. So the story is, after an awful life, John's soul is ready to say goodbye to this cruel world. In that moment, a demon called Okaso appears in front of him. The mysterious creature offers John the opportunity of being young again, having the life he's always dreamed of. In exchange of his soul, of course. Will John accept his offer? And if so, what will be the consequences? 
So in this game, you play as John, you help him fix his life and avoid terrible past mistakes, but with a demon on your side. It's a 3D graphic adventure with classic point-and-click and visual novel elements. It has emotional atmospheric storytelling, and a game will be available in English and Spanish at launch. So there is a demo on itch.io and on Game Jolt and a playthrough as well. And the game is now on Kickstarter. And there's still a few weeks left, about three weeks left for them to reach their goal of 5,000 euro. They're more than halfway through. So it's looking good, but we can we can help them reach their goal. It looks very interesting. And I really hope this game makes their funds and makes their goal. So if the game is successfully funded, the developers hope to release it by the end of the year. And next, we have uh, two games which I've talked about previously on the podcast. So the first is Antenna Dilemma. Of course, I had Golosa Games, the developer, on a previous episode. He has now released Antenna Dilemma on Mac and Linux, and he's localized a game in French. So you can get this game now on Steam as well, and Mac and Linux, and it is free as well. So it is highly recommended. And then another game called Grun, which I've spoken, which I've spoken, which I've spoken about before as well. It's dark Lynchian narrative-driven adventure game. The full demo of this game has been announced that it will be released on September the twenty-third of this year. Now, there are a few games that have been released this week, all comedy games. So, the first game is, and I hope I get the pronunciation right, Irony Curtain from Matryoshka with Love. So, it is set in Matryoshka 1951, and it is a satirical point-and-click inspired by the classic adventure games. It smuggles you out of your comfort zone and throws you into the middle of a Cold War spy intrigue. And there's an even bigger game being played. So experience Matryoshka through Evan, a low-ranking, goofy journalist involuntarily pulled right into the middle of an espionage standoff between two powers. Hop onto the wacky spy adventure, uncover secrets of the bizarre communist country and the powerful capitalistic empire. Witness a story full of unpredictable twists and turns and discover the true agenda of the mysterious supreme leader. So again, on ironycurtaingame.com, you can find more information about the game. You can see screenshots, and it looks beautiful. It certainly does look reminiscent of early LucasArts games, but in HD. And it has been getting some really, really positive reviews upon its release, so that's well worth checking out. So that game again is Irony Curtain from Matryoshka with Love. And a second game that has been out this week is called Clam Man. So this is an absurd, strange and hilarious underwater adventure featuring the Clam Man, duck, nasty drinks and horrifying reality of mayonnaise crime. So you play as Clam Man, who is a clam, working for a mayonnaise company, but you are unfortunately fired. However, you think that there's something else uh, going on, so you then take it upon yourself to investigate why. And now I played this game, and I I didn't know much about it, but I really, really enjoyed it. It's one of the funniest games that I have played, I would say probably since The Dark Side Detective, 
similar humor to that. And it, it looks great. And I really liked the characters as well. And I really enjoyed it. So full review will be coming up next week. But if you are interested, then I would definitely recommend that people check this game out. And so that game again is Clam Man. So full review will be up next week. But I really, really enjoyed it and I really recommend people check it out. And then finally, uh, Nelly Kutalot, uh, Spoonbeaks Ahoy HD Remaster is also out this week. So this game was released on a free back in 2007. But Alastair Beckett King has re-released it and has updated it. And I really enjoyed this game when it was first out as well. So I'd recommend people check this game out as well. Now, this takes me very nicely on to our interview with the developer, Alasdair Beckett-King. So we speak about all manner of things. We speak about adventure games. We speak about Aubrey Din. We, we speak about 3D versus 2D. And maybe give a controversial opinion or two. And we also talk a little bit about his games. We also speak about unforeseen incidents, which he worked on. And finally, we speak about Adventure X. So in particular, if you are a developer and if you would like to exhibit your game or if you'd like to give a talk at the conference then this uh, I ask him some questions about this so this will be interesting to you in particular as well so uh, here is first of all a trailer from his game Nelly Kutlot Spoonbeaks Ahoy and then the interview so please enjoy In 2007, with the release of Nelly Coutelot Spoonbeaks Ahoy, I invented the pirate adventure game genre. Since then, the game has spawned many imitators, and also, to some extent, before then. Nevertheless, it was a very fun freeware game and it got lovely reviews, but by today's standards the graphics are very low res, it's hard to read the text, and it doesn't always run properly on modern computers. Look, it's so tiny. Meanwhile, I recently released a new Nelly adventure called Nelly Coutelot The Foul Fleet on Steam. This game is fully HD with all the bells and whistles and whistling bells, etc. So, that gave us the idea to remaster Spoonbeaks Ahoy in high definition. And bring it to Steam with your help. If you'd like to see this charming indie gem given a much needed makeover, then vote yes. If you wouldn't like to see it given a makeover... What is wrong with you? Where's the love? Thank you very much for joining me for the Adventure Games podcast. And I'm here with Alasdair Beckett-King, the developer of the Nelly Kutalot series. And we worked on other games as well. So how are you, Alasdair? I'm very well. Thank you, Shosha. Have I, have I pronounced your name correctly now yes, that the recording you did. has started? Good. Oh, you think you think that we would have been discussing the pronunciation no, of our names? I did not no? ask you at all beforehand. I just, <laughs> I just knew because I'm wow, just, that... just a great guy. That that is amazing because even in Ireland, you know, many people have difficulties with the pronunciation of my name. So you are definitely unique in that sense. I am. I am indeed. <laughs> and I'm uh, sure in many other senses. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. No, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to discussing your your games. F- first of all, before we start talking about your games, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself and say what your favorite adventure game is or are. 
Okay. Um, well, oh, favorite. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> there's so many. I do. I really like adventure games. Um, I, and what this is a great start. My name, <laughs> my name is Alistair Baker King, and um, I, I do sort of film and animation stuff, and I work as a stand-up comedian. But I also have made a couple of little indie adventure games, and I do a bit of writing on other people's uh, adventure games uh, when when they allow me to, basically. Um, and my the, the the adventure games that have had the biggest influence on me monkey island is is the obvious one but it's the obvious one for a good reason because it was the, the first one that i played when i was a kid uh i'm also a massive massive fan of riven and i think it's the best of the, of the mist series and i will defend the, the mist series to my grave if i have to and um probably the uh, i've played loads of really good adventure games recently um, but I think the uh, voyage of the Oberdin, sorry, the return of the Oberdin, uh, even though I can't remember its name, <laughs> is uh, certainly the most striking and complete and impressive of uh, of the ones I've played recently. Even though I've played some absolutely terrific ones uh, like um, uh, Hypnospace Outlaw and uh, Unavowed. Yes, no, that's, I mean uh, myself and the reviewer Tomas, we had a whole episode on Oberdin <laughs> where we just talked about how great it was. <laughs> it really, um, because uh, I've been on a sort of detective games kick at the moment. Um, I'm playing the uh, the Payne's Creek Killings at the moment, and um, the uh, the Strange Case of Doctor Decker. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, so I'm, I, but as detective games go, I don't want to be critical of the other detective games. Oh, I also played Lamplight City um, mm. last year, uh, which was very, very good. Oberdin, I think, is remarkable because everything comes together perfectly, I think, in terms of the uh, the, the nature of the, the types of problems you're solving. Nothing's been put there uh, as an arbitrary obstacle. Um, it's a sort of... Uh, it, it belongs, I think, with maybe Hypnospace Outlaw and The Witness in that it feels like a sort of... A, a sort of non-linear, slightly open-world detective game, which I think might might turn into a sort of a genre of its own. In that you're sort yeah. of um, you're not you're not doing a lot of the things from the classic detective story. You're not interrogating witness. You're not collecting clues. What you're doing is, um, but you but you are using your sort of deductive abilities as you explore and come to an understanding of how the world works of in the game, which is what I loved about Riven. You know, when uh, you you dig into this fantastical world, and in order to solve the the puzzles, which are straightforward capital P puzzles, you have to understand a bit about their culture. You have to learn how their n- n- uh, numerical system works. You have to understand what these machines were supposed to do. Um, and it's that sort of um, deductive, analytical uh, kind of thinking that I think is really interesting because it, it digs you into the the world of the story, or in the case of the Voyage, uh, Return of the Oberdin, it, it, the history of the the characters and the sort of the <clears throat> sort of nineteenth uh, century adventure novel that is hidden behind all of the deaths that you encounter. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the way that the, the story is told as well that you uh, you know, f- go backwards in in time. You know that you f- know the ending first, and then you have to use a deductive and analytical reasoning to find out what exactly happened. And then there's still surprises in the story. You know <laughs> uh, that you know you think, okay, what when I first saw the the, the thing, I don't want to give any spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> 
without doing any spoilers, the thing is pretty the, impressive. The thing with and Blake, the other things as well. I know with things, that, you know and what that I mean. <laughs> and well, it's the thing with legs that came from the yeah. sea. As, as, <laughs> I was like, wait, what is that? That's one of the oh, one of the biggest I've seen. No, but it it was a you know fantastic game as well, and it's. You know, it also kind of, okay, it does kind of, it tells you how it works, like, with the compass and all at first, but then it's like, okay, you're kind of on your own here, you need to, I mean, you have all the things, like, you have to, um, uh, you have the pictures that you have to see who the characters are, and you have the, you can go back in time using the compass and find it, and this is how it works, but how you actually find out who the char- who the characters are and what happened, it's up to you, <laughs> you need to, to solve it, so. Yes, and, it, it's, yeah. it's remarkable because the, because you, you, it's sort of like a, a new kind of genre in itself in that respect. Right. Like, cause the, the me- that mechanism is not a familiar mechanism, but, but there's no reason it shouldn't be. There's no reason there wasn't, you know, it feels like you're playing a game from um, sort of uh, 1989 or 1991. And someone said, well, what's the most logical way of solving a mystery? It would be with this little journal. And then you decide right. how to, the, uh, and, uh, but that, but that never became a main mainstream genre of game that never really, I felt the same way about um, playing Heaven's Vault um, recently, which was also really, really impressive. Um, but it has a sort of, um, in, a, in a very good way, it has a sort of de- design naivete about it, or naivety, I don't know how to pronounce that. In uh, so yeah, far as... one is fine, I think. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a, it's a sort of slightly sandboxy, um, I suppose mm. it's a, it is a mystery, an archaeological mystery. Most, it, it, it's, it's sort of, interactive fiction illustrated with um um mostly uh 3d slash 2d artwork but but it plays like a like a game it, it could it could have been a whole genre in itself i i think what I mean, it feels like it belongs to the early days of games when the the genres hadn't sort of solidified yet and everything was still slightly liquid um, when there was an awful lot more variety, but also most most of the games being made didn't really work that well because the mechanics hadn't solidified. And the mechanics solidified into oh, things we recognize, like this is a first-person exploration, or this is a, a point-and-click, or this is an upscreen shooter and all the rest of it. Mm. And it feels like um, some of these games, like Hypnospace Outlaw, where you're exploring someone's browser, um, uh, Heaven's Vault, uh, where it's sort of, some yeah it's a sort of non-linear interactive fiction but it's highly visual uh and, and the, you're using the mechanism of translating a new language and the voyage of the Oberdin. it feels like they're um they're breaking down the the conventions of how how you're supposed to solve the puzzles in an adventure game and coming up with something quite new yeah no definitely you know loved how you know experimental they are that how and they all seem to have worked uh pretty well i mean Oberdin. Got Return of the Oberdin got, um, you, you know, it was uh, for many mainstream gaming sites, they rated it better than AAA titles like Red Dead Redemption 2, Assassin's Creed, God of War, which is absolutely amazing. <laughs> uh, this is the, important, the important thing about narrative games is that everybody likes them. And, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I've made small indie games and it's, it's certainly a niche. Um, and I, I help to organize Adventure X which is certainly an event catering towards uh, a, a small but absolutely passionately devoted mm-hmm. audience. But the reality is that the the reason that um, adventure games suffered such a hit in the maybe around the turn of the century 
uh, are twofold. One, uh, 3D graphics were brilliant for action games back then, but absolutely terrible for anything that's based around character because everybody's head was just three polygons that looked crap and you couldn't tell a story with it. And some people tried and um, Tim Schafer pretty much managed it, but almost nobody else did. Um uh, and the other reason was that uh, once uh, once the the sort of the hardware stuff improved, people started putting stories into action games, and the the sort of the unique selling point of the point and click, where you get to meet characters you really care about and uh, and find out things about a world and ex- explore uh, and have sort of peaceful moments and and those sorts of things and solve problems. Uh, we found that sort of. Uh, what what became mainstream games were doing all of those things and sometimes doing them better than sort of mm. classic point and clicks were doing them. Um, and so it's not that uh, it's not that stories or thinking about things or learning about characters or experiencing empathy. It's not that any of those things were ever unpopular in a way. I think it's that um, that triple uh, A games learned to do them really well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the best example I can think of off the top of my head are uh, Uncharted and The Last of Us, which are, you know, they're nearly kind of like adventure games. They have action, and that's you yeah. know, the main point. But they also have, you know, incredible stories. They have dialogue with characters. They have puzzles, and they have exploration as well. So just everything that an adventure game has, but with more action, with incredible action sequences. And uh, and I think now even uh, something like Red Dead Redemption 2 has, you know, amongst many other things, but it has a story as well. It has dialogue. And even Assassin's Creed Odyssey had uh, dialogue choices as well. So yeah, I think they've moved on. But, uh, you know, because I, I, I do agree that, uh, you know, the turn of the century when they tried to use 3D in adventure games that, at the beginning, it didn't work very well. You know, people always use examples of Escape from Monkey Island and Gabriel mm. Knight three and that but then you mentioned grim fandango which no yes. which people who say oh i hate 3d they never mentioned that game <laughs> well <laughs> one of my, my i have one of my pet peeves uh, about the um the adventure game community if, if it exists or the, or the narrative game community is that uh i think we're um we're we're stuck in the past in a lot of ways and it, hey look i made two point and click uh, games about a pirate so you know <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, yeah, it's easy to see the, the the splinter in someone else's eye, but no, but I love those games, uh, and I'm unapologetic about that. Well, I'm almost unapologetic about um, about making a classic point and click adventure game. Um, uh, I like them a lot. I think they're wonderful. I think they're a great way of delivering um, sort of funny jokes and lovable characters and all that sort of thing, um, and, and uh, you know, sort of cute puzzles. I love that sort of thing, but. Um, but I regularly see sort of among uh, occasionally when some, you know, someone uh, announces a, a new adventure game some, or, or something like um, the uh, uh, Revolution Software are making a new version of uh, not a new version of, but a spiritual follow up to Beneath the Steel Sky, Beyond yes. the Steel Sky. And people will jump in and go, oh, 3D, 3D killed adventure games. And you think, how can you how how can you live in 2019 and, and think that 3D <laughs> killed adventure games or not all, but many of the best adventure games i've played recently have been 3d and uh, i see the same thing when people say do you you know i i used to love playing adventure games you know back in the the 90s can you do you have any recommendations and people only recommend like you know have you played broken sword 2 think do you not realize that <laughs> like even if you like 2d games there's like amanita and like loads of people and and um uh, dave gilbert people have been making games and also and this is the important secret 
quite a lot of the time, the new ones are better than the ones from the 90s. Yeah, that's true, Quite a lot of the time, they are better because they've they've learned from the problems of those games. And you do occasionally get the, the, the situation where one of the sort of the, uh, the grandees of, of uh, video games makes another game after having sort of 20 years off uh, through Kickstarter. And you realize they haven't played any of the games in the interim and somehow seem to have learned no no less about how to do it now than they did in the 90s in, in weird ways. Um, and I think that's very frustrating because it, going back to playing classic LucasArts games, the number of things they they did well are extraordinary. You know, the 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 even things like um, I, I'm a, a, a film guy, so I'm obsessed with framing. And the way the camera follows the characters in LucasArts games is excellent. And this is super, super nerdy. So if it's too nerdy for your Adventure Games podcast... No, go know, ahead. I, I don't think this can, out. I'm not sure it can be too nerdy for an Adventure Games podcast. Challenge accepted. <laughs> so in the, the LucasArts games, uh, if you go back and play them, the, the, the camera follows very, very intelligently. So um, first of all, the scrolling is smooth. It's not locked to the speed that the character is moving at because that happens all the time in contemporary point-and-click games. The camera is locked to the, to, the, to, the, to the walking speed of the player character, which means it's incredibly alarming as, as the player starts to move. The camera starts to move at the exact same speed. That's stupid. You should remember that cameras have operators behind them and operators make creative decisions about where to position the camera so that you can see a player. So in the LucasArts games, quite rightly, if you walk around in the middle section of the screen, it doesn't scroll because it doesn't need to scroll. You've got freedom of movement. And so the camera is not constantly panning or tilting to to accommodate you. As you get near to the edge of the screen, the camera starts to pan and the camera starts to pan and it gives you a little bit of looking room, which means if if you're walking uh, towards the left side of the screen, it gives you it, it, it positions you on the right hand side of the camera, so you can see ahead where the player is going. You're not locked into the middle of the screen, constantly having to repeatedly click on the left to get the player to walk. Broken Sword, the original Broken Sword, does this very well. If you click on the very far edge of a screen, it the the character doesn't just walk to that point. The character walks all the way to the other side of the of the location that you're in even though you didn't click there because the game knows that that's what you were trying to do and all of these these intelligent creative decisions about how to frame the characters in such a way that we make it as beautiful as possible had been solved in the 90s and (laughs) and every single point and click game doesn't do those things because they're really difficult to program um, and I drove the programmer absolutely crazy in uh, on the foul fleet because I was working with um, uh, a very talented and lovely programmer called Alex uh, with many PDF documents explaining how I think cameras ought to frame characters at different times. And then he had to try and come up with algorithms that did <laughs> my stupid and annoying opinions. But it, it, but the point is that LucasArts did it. They solved it. Um, Sierra didn't because they they were rubbish. Uh, objectively, <laughs> objectively speaking, they weren't as good, with the exception of Ooh, Gabriel Knight. <laughs> I hope you can uh, you, you can expect now people with pitchforks and you know torches coming to burn down your house at night. <laughs> Do we have the technology to know at what point people stop listening to a podcast? Because it would be interesting to know if that was just the switch off moment. <laughs> yeah, actually, with iTunes, you can a little bit, you know. And so pra- well, I'll check it out. <laughs> oh my God, you cri- you criticize Sierra. That's <laughs> well. I'll tell you what. Just put it as a sample, and you can put it at the start of the podcast as a as a warning. Like a warning. Uh, Alistair Becker King is going to be critical of uh, Sierra Adventure Games at some point. So well, should I put explicit content there? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, no, I'm just exercising my free speech. Um, <laughs> no, I, I loved all of those Sierra games, but in terms of um, in terms of sophistication of design or art exactly. or, or user friendliness, they were, you know, LucasArts games were leagues leagues ahead um, of those games and many of the point and clicks that came afterwards. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I enjoyed many of the Sierra games, but I get from a design point of view, like with uh, if you made a game like, uh, in particular, early Sierra games now, like with dead ends and lots of death scenes and, you know, puzzles that make no sense whatsoever, the games would not sell well. People would give them bad reviews. Now, I think Sierra definitely were pioneers of the genre. Robert Absolutely, Williams, yeah. You know, they, and, you know, they did help make some great games. Like Space Quest is one of the funniest series and leaders with Larry. And then Police Quest was really realistic, at least for the time, and Gabriel Knight and all. But sorry, from a uh, giant point... I did like Space Quest as well. I did enjoy the humor. Exactly. Space. Now, when I first played Space Quest, you know, I died in the first three seconds. I didn't <laughs> the first one. And I admit I got I was a bit frustrated, but I persevered, and then I ended up really enjoying it. But mm. um, but uh, actually, talking about the the early days of the genre, um, the Laura Bow adventure, Colonel's Bequest, that could be um, you you could talk about that alongside Oberdin and the other games I was talking about there. So we've got a non-linear detective story where you can be in any room at any time and you're just trying to pick up clues as to what happened and trying to make sense of it. Um, and of course, the problem is it's a Sierra game from maybe 1989 or something like that, or maybe 1990. So basically, you can't finish the game until you've played it through like nine times because <laughs> you won't be in the right room at the right time to get any of the information. So the whole concept right. doesn't really work looking back, but <laughs> right. it's incredibly, it, it, it's still an, a, an original concept. And it, 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 maybe um, the the Last Express is the only one that's sort of similar in that it's right. a sort, of, a sort of a nonlinear mystery where you might be in the right coach at the right time to catch the conversation you needed to catch. But at least that game had the, the courtesy to allow you to turn back time and try it again if you got it wrong. Uh, but still, I it's, have to play it. But. Oh, it's 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 wonderful. But it's a game. It's one of those games where you either probably want to have a little glance at a walkthrough to make sure you don't miss something <laughs> important, or you're going to play it again as soon as you finish to find out what crucial clue you missed because you were in the buffet car when you should have been somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, no, I've I've heard you know both sides of the argument. People who absolutely love the game, and then people who hate the game, both for the exact same reasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but I think it's quite, quite funny. That's the nature of a niche genre or, or a cult, uh, a cult hit. That's what uh, um, I think. Trying to uh, trying to be user friendly is great, but trying to please everyone is impossible. Oh, it's so impossible. You, yeah. So you should, you know, people people love solving mysteries. What did I see? Someone, someone. I don't know who it was on Twitter, but someone with loads of followers um, quote tweeted the um, the pitch for Heaven's Vault, which was something like, "Do you want to?" Uh, translate an ancient alien language, and he, and he was saying, no, "No, that sounds super boring." I think, okay, well, don't play it then. But I think that sounds great. Yeah, so it's a it's a sort of um, it, it's a good um, litmus test. If translating a lost ancient language sounds like it would be a fun game to you, you're going to love this game. If it sounds like a boring chore, go away. Like we don't <laughs> we don't need you. Like you're not going to enjoy it. It's not for you. It's not for everyone. And um, these kind of games, yeah, they're not going to be for everyone. Exactly. I think a lot depends on the execution as well. You know, that even the best idea, if it's not executed well, it can still end up badly. But I think... Yes, and that's that's what I think is remarkable about the return of the Oberdin, especially since it's it's almost a a one-person effort, you know, and the fact that he's doing the artwork and the music and the design and everything else. That What's remarkable about that is uh, that it does all come together really well. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's in 3D. But anyway. <laughs> 3D! Uh, <laughs> Admittedly, though, with uh, it, uh, a one-bit yeah. one um, veneer. Is it a one-bit or a two-bit veneer? I don't know. Uh, that I'm not sure. But, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't look anything like a 3D game. But, um, but yeah, and before we talk about your game very briefly, I know that people had the same comments, shall I say, with Techno Babylon 2 when that was announced, that people were saying no, they're going to do 3D to kill the adventure genre, and and I saw you wrote the comments on Facebook actually that you know, when everyone was kind of going crazy, you seemed to be the one of the few voices of reason, saying, you know, because people were saying oh, 3D killed the adventure genre with Escape from Monkey Island released 20 years ago. It was, and yeah, then, it was like tw- 19 years, wasn't it? Escape yeah, from Monkey Island was released yeah. 19 years ago. People's computers have got better that even back then the games looked ugly i mean i don't think anyone in 2000 would go wow escape from monkey island looks really nice it looks gorgeous no back then it what you know didn't look very nice but i think you know well the technology has improved since then and i understand people's fear because you know i do get that 2d can look nicer in 3d you need to work harder from what i've heard to make it look nice it might be as timeless yeah, I, but i mean I it can look really nice as well yeah, I've done 2D animation and 3D animation, and um, 3D animation is really, really hard work. It's mm. it's it's harder to make a game in 3D. So if you're uh, if you're an indie studio and you're making a game, it's going to be less onerous to make a 2D game. And so if you've got the same amount of time slash budget, uh, maybe 2D is uh, a wise choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also high, you know really stylized forms of uh, 3D and, and sort of low poly aesthetics which are which are n- not just accepted but sort of uh, people really like now and have the sort of the 3D version of pixel art I suppose mm-hmm. and um, there are economic choices aesthetic, economic aesthetic choices that people can make in order to get their games off the ground and it it all depends on the game I I just don't understand how. It's sort of like listening. Do you want to listen to this album? Has it got an oboe in it? No. Well, I'm not listening. It's like <laughs> how, you have. How do you? How can you decide in advance that that? Oh, it, it it absolutely must be 2D and not 3D. Otherwise, I won't like your game's story and puzzles and world and all the rest of it. It's it's such a bizarre. It's like people who won't watch black and white films. It's like what are you talking? How do you know you don't like it yet? It's such a weird thing to a weird hang up. And it's and it's because it's it's all about being stuck in the past. And, exactly. and about worshipping the games, some of which were great, most of which were just enjoyable, um, <laughs> at the expense of people doing creative stuff now. Why why do that when we could be being uh, champions for people who are making cool stuff right now? Exactly, and that's kind of the main reason why I started a podcast as well. I, I mean, I loved uh, previous games, and I've spoken to some of the developers like the Coles and you know, but they're still working today, which is important as well. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and and yet, because there are many, many developers such as yourself who are making really great adventure games now. So uh, if you want, you know, nearly half an hour in, we can start talking about your games. <laughs> oh, <I've laughs> as been much as I'd to... love I absolutely hate doing the self-promotion side of it, um, but um, so that's why I've been getting on a rant about how <laughs> how point-and-click games are terrible. Um, but anyway, the point is, I made two of them. Um, well, if, if you want, we can c- continue talking. We can continue <laughs> criticizing Sierra. If you want to criticize who else? If you want to criticize Broken Sword now, which then I'd have a problem. Or we can say which is better, Monkey Island One hey, or Monkey Island Two? I'm I'm here to defend uh, uh, Broken Sword 3's, um, uh pushing crate puzzles. I enjoyed those. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I like to push a crate. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah I really, I, too many, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> big defender of uh, Broken Sword Three. And Broken um, Sword Four. Anyway, we should. <laughs> 
I have so I have um I have more criticisms of four than Broome Sword four actually is a good argument for the problems of three D. Yeah. Uh, because the um, it's, it's the budgetary argument because the the, the crisis exactly. at the end is that there is a bomb under the Vatican I think or at least a, a building in Rome, um, but because it's 3D we can't afford to see it, and it's a it's a cinematic problem that we can't really be afraid for the people who are in trouble if we can't see yeah. them. Now if that were a 2D game it's still you know it's still a lot of work for an artist to do to produce uh, the background scenes for loads and loads of people arriving in a giant building. But it's possible in a way that in 3D it isn't possible at all on an indie uh, studio budget. And so I think that was um, uh, a huge fan of uh, uh, Revolution Software and Broken Sword oh, yeah, and too. a huge yeah. admirer of Charles Cecil, who regularly appears at uh, Adventure X, which we're delight- delighted about. Uh, so I hope this doesn't sound like uh, slander. <laughs> but but I think it's, a, it, 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 it's an example of where um, 3D caused a problem for being able to tell the story. Yeah. Also, I think he mentioned that they were rushed to release the game and to, you know, make the game did as he? well. That I think he did mention that at the publisher then. that they wanted the game out because I was thinking the first three games in particular are great, and then Broken Sword Four came out, which isn't as good. But um, he, I think he himself said it, and he, I think that's why he, he made Broken Sword Five to rectify that, which yeah. I did really enjoy. So I anyway, really back, enjoyed. Yeah. No, my my, my observation about Broken Sword 5 was going to be that I think it has the same issue I, I felt with um, uh, it, uh, Tim Schafer's game uh, Broken Age, which is that I think splitting it in two really hurt the game in a way. Yeah. And he, I feel like a, a lot uh, the, the second half struggles to pay off the first half in, in both of those cases for a variety mm-hmm. of reasons. And, uh, and in both cases... I don't know if this is a coincidence. In both cases, the puzzles in the second half felt a little more... Um, I'm not a huge fan of the phrase moon logic, um, but it does come up in a lot of adventure game reviews. I think the the logic of the puzzles crumbles a little bit in the second half, possibly in, in response to what fans were saying about the first section being too easy. Um, I think one of the difficulties for those guys uh, is that the feedback they're getting is, is from hardcore fans of the genre... Uh, and our view of what a difficult puzzle is is quite different from what um, somebody who just likes games with nice graphics and stories and interesting characters. Um, yeah. Because we've played every single one of them. <laughs> uh, and so we have lots of extremely specific opinions about how you're supposed to do it. Um, yeah, does, does the game have actual puzzles? puzzles. I mean, I better have 400 things in my knapsack and no idea what to do with any of them. I better be carrying like four different cats covered in different types of preserve. This one with jam, this one with marmalade, lobbing them at everyone I meet in the hope that one of those things does something. Yeah, and, I, and we love that. I say we yeah. somewhat sarcastically, but as a group we do. But it's it's not good to build your game necessarily, uh, unless you you are uh, Dan Marshall who did the Ben and Dan games. Uh, his games are completely about that, about <laughs> completely about completely hilariously stupid solutions to ludicrously contrived puzzles. Right. Uh, but, but they're funny. That's the point. The point is you're enjoying the ludicrousness of the solution. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, no, definitely. And I think, again, one thing I mentioned about this is, that, again, he appeared, I think it was the Backseat Designers uh, podcast, where he did say that he released, I think, the first part of Broken Sword 5 because he didn't want to tell the back of the Kickstarter that there would be another delay yes. on the game, so he wanted to get something out there. So I can understand yes. that as well. But He said the same thing. Uh, he talked to us through that Adventure X, I think, in 2000. Yes. Uh, for, I don't know, several years ago now. 
Uh, and it, yeah, a, a perfectly reasonable decision strategically, I think. Um, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but I, I think it had an unfortunate impact on the game creatively. I think a delay would have been creatively, if not uh, yeah, yeah. diplomatically, uh, the best choice. I think I, I think there's a problem with uh, our attitude to Kickstarter as well, because I, I remember before Kickstarter existed. You know, when like, um, you know, Sam and Max hit the, the sequel, to Sam and Max was being canned by LucasArts uh, mm. and all the adventure games were getting cancelled and, uh, and you know, people couldn't get a, a 2D adventure game published because publishers weren't interested. Yeah. Being incredibly frustrated by the these money men, for want of a better term, you know, like, oh, come on, we know these people are talented. Just give them the budget. It's a small budget comparatively. Just give them the money they need and let them do their thing. And then Kickstarter came out. And suddenly it's me giving them the money. And then we're all like, uh, we, the deadline is three weeks ago. Where is the game? And we've become the, um, <laughs> the those guys with, you know, with their suits making terrible decisions. They're putting incredible pressure on the creative people who we we used to want to give creative freedom to. Now we want them to deliver on time. And we wanted and to make exactly the game that we exactly wanted to make. Exactly the game that you said you were going to make or you have betrayed us. <laughs> yeah. And it, I feel like, yeah, I understand that feeling. I think some people do take uh, their Kickstarter backers for granted, which is horrible. And I think mm -hmm. people do take the piss on Kickstarter. And there are things which are borderline scams. And I'm mm -hmm. not defending any of those. Uh, I'm just saying that, you know, Tim Schafer can have as long as he wants to make any game that I've backed. I'm not bothered. I'll play it when it's ready. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And I, I feel like that that attitude would be, um, yeah, I think that's the feel. We feel like we've bought the game in advance. Well, more, that isn't what you've done. It's not a pre-sale system, or at least it's not supposed to be. You've mm -hmm. funded the development of the game, so you you get that you give that money away, and then you hope they make a really good game, and that's the all you can do. You can give them feedback when they ask for it, but all you've got to, that's the way it works. You you give the money, and then you hope they use it to make a good game. That's it. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I think we've learned over the last few years in particular from Kickstarter is that making adventure games is hard. It's hard work. It takes a long time. Making any game is hard. It's so difficult As well, to make yeah, any game. Is, uh, you know, any good game. You can put any game like uh, out in, in a week or so, but making a very good game takes a long time. It's really, really, really hard work. And, um, and we can criticize games for sort of lazy story choices. But if you've finished a game, then you haven't been lazy because exactly. it's, it's hard work. Yeah. Um, so fair play to anyone who's done it. And look, guys, I've made two. So what a bloody hero, eh? You know? <laughs> well, you've done other game. things as well. So speaking of that, I think we should probably, <laughs> I think we should probably go go on to to your games. Um, uh, that so, yeah. yeah? Well, the, 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 the quick sales pitch for, for or the background for my games is uh, uh, as you, I can't remember if you mentioned this during the podcast or during the preamble where I tried to learn your name. But back in 2007, I made a freeware game called Nelly Kutalot Spoonbeaks Ahoy, which was meant to be a birthday present for my girlfriend, who was a big fan of pirates. Uh, so I made her into a character in a game. Uh, but it got way out of hand and took like an extra year. And so it ended up being like a Christmas present or something like that. No, it was no, I can't remember. It came out in March 2007, I think. Um, no, St. Patrick's Day present. Yay! <laughs> not, that, yeah. not that that exists, but... <laughs> um, it does now. <laughs> And um, yeah, and, and that that well, it's hard to it's hard to say. I suppose by the standards of freeware adventure games, it did fairly well. There's not much of a measure for these things back then because it was a world of sort of forums and people sharing freeware games in zip files that were all about five to thirty megabytes in size, which seems terribly quaint now because time has moved on so much and we have broadband. Uh, but this was before broadband and the rise of the alt-right. It was a different world on the internet <laughs> in so many yeah, ways. So, 
uh, you know, more like innocent, can, shall yeah. we say. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Um, and, um, yeah, but sort of ever since then, I had been working off and on on trying to do a proper full full length game sequel. Um, and in 2016, I released Nelly Kuzlot, The Foul Fleet, which was a follow up. Uh, and by full length, my, my ambition was to make full length, massive LucasArts sized game. Uh, and it's not as big as that. It's comparable to most of the indie point and clicks you'll play. Um in terms of length, which is not super, super long. It doesn't include mazes um, or any of the things designed to make it last for four months to play. Um, but I, um, I, I kickstarted that um, back uh, at the at the same time that Armicrog and Massive Chalice were being kickstarted, uh, which made it really difficult because... <laughs> no, actually, it wasn't Massive I can't remember. Basically, Tim Schafer and um, uh, Doug Tenable both launched Kickstarters like two days after I launched my Kickstarter, oh. which meant that every single website that had written an article about indie game on Kickstarter had already written two, and it was very hard to get coverage. Um, nonetheless, um, oh, oh, and then I released the game on the same day that Tim Schafer uh, released Day of the Tentacle Remastered, because he doesn't know this, but he's ruining my life. <laughs> He's ruining your life, your career. You know, he, yep. I think, I think he has it in Tim for you. Schaefer. I think he, he has once, it in for you. He, he did he doesn't want say, to be successful. He once said that Ginger Jesus guy is <laughs> on Twitter in reference to a video I was in. Um, so he doesn't he doesn't know that he has both complimented and insulted me on many occasions. <laughs> he doesn't know this, but I know this. Um, I'm just throwing darts at a picture of Tim Schaefer on the wall here. Um, yeah, I- I think we should have uh, what 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 what's it called? Uh, um, you know, you know, just not play his games. You know, I think we Boycott, should. Uh, yeah. But it's exactly, you know, like what, exactly what's what Star Wars quote unquote fans do. Uh, then they go and see them anyway. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, uh, oh, okay. So so then is uh, is the character Nelly Kutalot, Is she? at least kind of based on your girlfriend or? yeah yeah she's exactly okay the same. Uh, but uh, well as it's gone on i've got better at writing the character so she sounds more and more like her in the she, she sounds more like her in um uh the in the the longer game the foul fleet than she does in the uh, in the original okay, spoon big ahoy and she, she and she voice voices acting? the character oh, yes she did yes uh, cool. absolutely, a lot of arguments there uh, the, the, the main reason being that it's way cheaper than getting an actress to do it, but also with uh, it meant that um, that we could um, surround her with really good, uh, really really good voice actors. So in the in the Foul Fleet, we had um, well Tom Baker plays Sebastian the Coot, who's her sister, uh, her, her, her sister, her assistant, I meant to say. <laughs> Uh, and I'm a lifelong fan of Tom Baker, who listeners might know from being the, the best Doctor Who, as well as being Puddleglum in uh, Narnia, which is where I first met him. Wow. Um, so a, a, a wonderful voice and a wonderful voice actor. Um, but we had a, a fantastic cast um, a, 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 with some crossovers with some of the games we've mentioned, including Broken Sword 5. Uh, Toby Longworth was in both of those. And um, you'll have heard his voice in loads of stuff, a really talented voice actor. Um, Sue Sheridan, who uh, very sadly has passed away since the game, um, since well, in fact, before the game was released, because uh, it t- took so long to make it. Um, but uh, British people will know her because she was the the voice of Elspeth in the Family Ness, which was a kids show in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, but she was also in Black Cauldron, the the Disney film. She was the little, the little girl in Black Cauldron. And the, the neat adventure game connection there is that Sierra's Black Cauldron was one of the first graphical adventure games ever. Of course, it didn't have voice acting in it, 
but yeah. uh, the, uh, it was a, at least uh, a, 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 oh I forgot to say Sue Sheridan she was also a trillion in the original radio series of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy which I am a massive fan of so oh, which is, um, which is also I think a text adventure game <laughs> And there's also a Texas Adventure. Oh. <laughs> so there's lots of, and I, I won't list all of the actors, but they they were all really, so, really lovely people. But it was nice to work with uh, people with proper sort of, uh, with, pro- properly talented actors who really, I think, uh, bring a sort of, I, I hope, a sort of British radio comedy sensibility to the um, to the characters in uh, Nelly Cootalot, The Foul Fleet. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like it's a wonderful cast. Then in, I, yeah, in the well, I think the thing um, the thing that I I say about the game I think the um, when pitching a, a an indie game I think the issue now is what people want is something that um, it sort of seems like it might be a terrible idea but they need to play it to find out and you need uh, you need some kind of hook or a concept I think Undertale is a good example of that it's uh, the, the premise of it is completely in, is intriguing because it seems like oh well, that doesn't sound like it would be that good but everybody's saying it's amazing so what's the secret and then you play it and you find out what the secret is which is that it is amazing right. uh, and Oberdin could easily have that quality yeah. you know, the graphic style could be alienating um, so what is it called it calls itself an in, an insurance adventure game <laughs> that sounds like it should be terrible papers please what's yeah. border agent that that sounds like it should be awful but it's not um, and the um, the challenge with a, a classic point and click game like Nelly is that that when people look at it they think ah I pretty much already know what that is it's right, yeah, it's a bit then... like Monkey Island now if you actually go on to play it you'll be pleasantly surprised because it's genuinely funny and it's made with a lot of love uh, and, and it's extra, it's a very likable game I think that's my opinion but it's an opinion shared by other people who've played it. Um, but the uh, the challenge is getting people to 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 play it because of the, because of the, it doesn't have um, because it seems like something that we've already seen um, and uh, yeah so when I'm sort of talking to people about new games and when I'm talking about people about the way they present games that's something that I, that's a lesson that I have learned the the importance sort of of the concept and the way that the game presents because what you want to to you want the game to be intriguing and then to deliver even more than that um and nelly kutalot does deliver more in terms of i think quite quite well written british kind of humor um and the occasional cool bit of voice acting um but but the the initial prospect of it's going to be a bit like monkey island is not sufficiently intriguing right um, yeah because so this was meant, to be a, that was, that was meant to be a sales pitch. It went very bad and became more <laughs> no, of a, a, no, no, a critique I, I, of I, my own marketing techniques. I think you've answered all of my questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's uh, no, but uh, all of that make makes sense because it does kind of annoy me when I mean I I you know as we mentioned I love the the Lucas Arts and many of the Sierra games as well. But then when you have games made now that try to copy or imitate those games that. When people, when developers say, "Oh, so if you like Monkey Island, you like this game, or this game is very similar to," that, and then I play, it's like, "No, it's trying to be, but that just makes me want to replay Monkey Island." So I'm going to uninstall this game and install Monkey Island again, and that's yeah. not what you want as a developer. But uh, uh, which, uh, and the Nelly Kudla game certainly fall within that. Uh, it'd be ridiculous for me to try and move out of the shadow of Monkey oh, Island. Yeah, I think, I, that's I why I refer to them as being the original, in inverted commas, uh, <laughs> pirate adventure game on a new, n- numerous occasions. Um, and I think most people get the joke. Um, well, I, I but, but you're, 
No, uh, one of the things that I, I see in comments and reviews is people saying it's full of references to Monkey Island. And uh, it's not because I've been quite scrupulous about this because that's quite boring. There's, it's not full of fourth wall breaking jokes about Monkey Island. Um, I think there's about one really oblique reference in each game. Uh, it has things in common with Monkey Island, certainly, and it owes a huge debt to Monkey Island. But it isn't full of nods and winks uh, to, uh, to to that game because the whole thing belongs in this, you know, in 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 that in the shadow of it as well as we're in the same genre but right. yeah the, the 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 game where the, the the pitch is we're going to retread exactly what you've already experienced isn't isn't what i wanted to do uh it might be what i did do but it isn't what i wanted for exactly the reason you said no i i don't think you did at least i played uh, the original back when it came out and i still remember it you know at least partly which says a lot about it you know yeah. played it back in 2007 but I, I think, you know, it's one thing, you know, kind of referencing other games. You know, I don't really have a problem if it's done well and, you know, and t- or taking inspiration from games because as we spoke before the interview, we were talking about Unavowed, which takes inspiration from Bioware games. But Absolutely, then it has, yeah. It has its own unique identity. And there are other games that, you know, the, the last game that I played, Gar Duty, which I would review in the next episode, but that references and take inspiration from you know games like simon the sorcerer and guard and no, guard duty no simon the sorcerer and uh, Discworld. Discworld, yeah but it has its own unique identity and i think that is the the main difference and the same with your games at least the first one that i played uh spoon beaks ahoy which if you say it's a comedy pirate adventure people you know might think oh this is trying to copy monkey island but once you first of all look at the screenshots and the videos and then play it you know, actually, this is very different. So where, where it's, it's can... as different as it can be while still being a, a pirate adventure game. There's not that many pirates in it. Uh, sure, that's one but, of the things that's different. And you but again, birds. You... Um, that's not. It. But yeah, I got the other thing that I should have said is that um, the this week what, that we're recording it, um, we're uh, releasing an HD remastering of the original game on Steam. Uh, because the you can't really play the game from 2007 anymore because it was designed for a, a 4.3 monitor uh, and graphics cards that are presumably sitting in a landfill somewhere. <laughs> and so it just doesn't really work anymore. Um, and so we, we went back, and um, uh, uh, luckily most of the art was vector artwork, so it scales up very nicely. Uh, I've had to redraw some of it. Um, uh, it sort of made it widescreen, uh, widescreen. But also, well, we couldn't afford to, um, to get tom baker or anyone else back um so what we did was uh, me and the real version of nelly uh, just sat in our little flat with this microphone that i have in front of me and recorded all of the voices for the game just in our flat with me doing a variety of different accents so it's um i'm pitching it as being uh, an extremely <laughs> cheap voiceover oh i you know i i'm i'm curious i'm intrigued now because <laughs> there's a video a video warning at the start where i explain that it's not meant to be that good the the, the the pitch for it originally was that it was like a storybook so it's like i'm reading you the whole story and i would do all the voices um and then uh then then real real life nelly decided she would do nelly again um and so it's just it's just me and her so it, you you can switch them off if you want the original experience of playing it with no voiceover or you can hear me doing, I can't even do an impression of Tom Baker, so it comes out sounding like a bad Patrick Stewart, unfortunately. <laughs> I would listen to that, though. <laughs> <laughs> I am very intrigued. <laughs> Hold on, let's see if I can, oh, no, I can't do that. Um, engage. Come with me, number one. That's my impression. And so it comes out sounding like that. It's not very good. But you'll have to listen to the whole thing. 
Um, you don't have to listen to the whole thing. You can <laughs> you can switch the voices off if you don't want to. But uh, but the feedback I've got from the testers has been that they really like the voices, even though obviously it's not you're not supposed to not be able to tell that it's just me doing all of them. Um, but I think it it makes it more fun and easier to play uh, once you hear the voices. And if you want to hear uh, you know cool professional voice actors' voices, you can go and play the other game. You can just go and buy it on Steam, can't you? Yeah. Yeah, you can get uh, bo- both games on Steam, um, but. Um, but then, what, so what changes, what other changes did you make? You mentioned that uh, the original Spoon Mix Ahoy can't be played now because it was made back in the Stone Age of 2007. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, but what did you make any other changes to the game for the HD remake or remaster? Um, I have, I, I think in the list of features, I've, I've written uh, bad jokes replaced with good jokes, which is, <laughs> which is a lie. Uh, I haven't really done this. Um, I have... I have made a few small tweaks. I've mostly cut out a few jokes. Um, um, I'm not sure I want to go into why I did that. Basically, I, I found a few jokes where I thought, actually, I think uh, looking back, I now think this joke is in bad taste. And rather than rewrite it, I think I'm just going to cut it out and no one will ever notice. <laughs> um, so I, I, it's a, it's, uh, it was hardly a game full of caustic South Park humor in the first place. So there wasn't a lot of stuff that I... Uh, Actually, I went back and there's a few jokes where I think that joke isn't very good, but I'm not changing it uh, because I feel like it, as a historical document, I'm obliged to keep some of the cheesy um, wordplay in there. Um, but, yeah, there are a few bits where I thought, actually, in order to keep this consistent with the um, the foul fleet, I'm going to just take that little bit out. But it's hardly George Lucas remastering the original series of Star Wars films. I, I wouldn't worry about it. I was about to mention that. Did you do uh, George Lucas on it? Did you... <laughs> there's, uh, there's another character. Uh, there's, there's... It, it now starts with a trade dispute between uh, <laughs> our, our taxes or something. Yeah, <laughs> something there's... really thrilling that's going to get the kids in. And, and then a CGI version of her father then appears. <laughs> or she, she does become the father. Spoiler. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, no, so I haven't made I haven't made okay. ma- major aesthetic changes because it, because it's a remaster rather than a remake, um, and because the point was to make it playable rather than to uh, you know the, right. to, to recreate it. Right. Yeah. And it it was the publisher's idea originally. Application Systems, who I, I should have mentioned, they were the ones who after I did the Kickstarter, they came on board and they made doing the Foul Fleet with a a, a decent budget possible. Uh, and they brought in Alex, the programmer, who made uh, all of the crazy stuff I was talking about earlier, like a ridiculous um, camera movement, which nearly works most of the time. <laughs> most of the time, the camera's pointing in the right place. Uh, and I'm very pleased with that. Um, and I hope he uh, doesn't hate me too much for being so pedantic about it. Um, and, sure. and they suggested, why don't we remaster Spoonbeaks Hoy? And I said, that's a crazy idea. I'm not doing that. Um, and then a few weeks later, I changed my mind and decided to do it. <laughs> And then well, I decided I was going to do a voiceover for it because I'm an idiot and I make poor decisions. That's, that, that is... I, don't, I don't think that's true because I think it's worked so far. We'll see. The game hasn't been released yet at the time of recording, but but maybe we'll just have you know Steam. Oh, the game is great, but that, uh, that voice actor, eh? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, I, I think it, uh, it, it will do well, at, at least from previous experience, but... Well, I hope uh, that people will appreciate that it's a it's a small little homemade project um, made with with love, and I hope that that's what people like about it. Yeah, well, it's it's the internet, so how you know how, what's the worst thing that could happen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The internet loves well well meaning well intentions, <laughs> naive things, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah. And now you also mentioned on the Steam page, reading that you 
said you have a new business model, business in quote in quotes. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Or? Oh uh, yeah, the, so um, because this used to be a freeware game, and because a variety of people contributed to it for no money back in two thousand and seven, because it was a freeware game. You know, people did translations uh, and uh, wrote music and uh, did testing for it and stuff uh, with no recompense whatsoever. Uh, I feel weird about making money out of Spoon Bigs Ahoy, um, which uh, which might not happen if no one buys it. Uh, but I thought the, the best way to solve that would be to give whatever my take of the sales is. It's going to be sold for a very small price tag, which is different in each country. So I don't actually know what it's going to be. Um, but um, uh, the yes. So basically, w- after fees and taxes, whatever I get, I'm going to give to the RSPB, which is the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. I always want to say the Royal Society for the Prevention of Birds, but that's <laughs> quite the opposite. They're bitter rivals with the Royal Society of the Protection of Birds. The pr- protection and the prevention of birds. You know, yes. be like a, a civil war between yeah, them. Locked in battle. Uh, ecological enemies. That, that um, could be your next game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so basically, I, I'm the important thing to note is that I'm I'm not going to make any money out of the selling of my formerly freeware game. Uh, Although we do have to cover steam costs and tax and all that sort of thing, the rest of it is going to go to the birds. Right. So, so how do you make a living then? If you that's <laughs> a good question. Uh, if you give all the money to the birds, literally. <laughs> well, I think the hope is uh, that some people who play the, the 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 cheap little game will go on to buy the uh, the the foul fleet if they haven't already bought it, and that would be nice. Um, and, and that game, you know, still still available, still costs money. The birds aren't seeing a penny of that. It's going straight into my pocket. <laughs> um after fees and taxes um and uh the the, well, the other way is by doing my job as a stand-up comedian and doing doing writing for other games is how uh, is how i've been paying the rent at the moment yeah so uh, so you met so you mentioned that just there now and before that you're stand-up uh, comedian so did you did you think that that helped when writing a comedy adventure or did, did it you know not help but <laughs> well it, it making jokes i, I suppose know, so yeah, I was only just—I was only just starting doing stand-up at the same time that I was starting to do the Kickstarter for um, for uh, Nelly Kutlop, the Foul Fleet in two thousand. Yeah, two, yeah. So I, 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 I was only just beginning doing that at the same time. So I think I was sort of expl- do, doing the Kickstarter video uh, where I had to sort of say, "Hey, fund my game in a funny way." That and other sort of pitch opportunities made me think hey i could try i could try to be deliberately funny more often and try and make money out of it and i'm not demonstrating that particularly well in this podcast uh, where i'm getting very serious about how cameras ought to frame characters uh, but you know with, with a fair wind and the right opportunity and an audience who've had the right amount to drink i am capable of doing stand-up comedy and i, I have done it uh, I've, I've won awards for it occasionally i've lost awards for it frequently um I'm I'm all right at it. I've got reviews. I've got stars, uh, so I can do it. Is what I'm saying. Um, yeah. But I, I was only sort of learning to do that while I was working on the game, um, and uh, so there was some some conflict there actually in terms of uh, because they're quite different disciplines. But I think originally, you know, I went to film school and I was always into games, and I was always feeling I had to keep those things separate in my life because they were different spheres you know the 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 internet world of uh, indie games and filmmaking totally unconnected it's a much more analog world but actually the things that i'm interested in 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 games and stand up and films and stories altogether they're all kind of the same thing and they've got a lot in common tonally and 
now that people know that I do these things, that I do all of these things, they feed into each other, you know, so that people who listen to a podcast come and see a stand up show or then download a game or people who download a game start to listen to, to a podcast. And these things feed into each other because because they're not really separate. The idea that you, you just have to focus on this this one thing, I think, is foolish. I think just doing what you're interested in may not be a brilliant five year plan. It may not be a great strategy, but it's a very I feel very lucky for the last few years to have mainly worked for myself and mainly worked on projects that I was interested in because I know lots and lots of creative people and they can't all say that. And mm -hmm. so I haven't made loads of money, but I feel extremely privileged to being able to make my things, you know. Right, you're, you're how, how, rich, rich spiritually, <laughs> if that exists. <laughs> yes, I lead a rich inner life. Um, but, yeah, and so I, I think, uh, yeah, so I feel very, very lucky to be to have been able to make things that I like, um, or uh, that I uh, that I can just about tolerate <laughs> and never go back and play without constantly noticing things that I could have done better. <laughs> no, they I'm are sure, pretty good games, listeners. You should play them. Don't listen to my self-deprecation. Play them, please. Yeah, no, no, he's, he's British. You know, to think about the British and the Irish, that we are kind of self-deprecating, at least with the Irish, that, you know, someone gives us praises. Oh, no, don't. Don't be. I mean, I'm not really like that. You know, I'm not that good. You know, I'm. That's awful, really. Yeah, just don't, don't play. Don't, 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 don't play my game. You know, it's not that's your game. But if I made a game, just, I was the same with uh, with the podcast that when when I first started um, that, and then people were telling me, "Oh, I listen to it. It's really good." I'm like, "Really? Really? Are you serious?" <laughs> but re, 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 I mean, no, no, it's not. I, I you know, that, that's, it's crap. Don't listen to it. And say, no, it's really good. <laughs> I've talked myself out of opportunities by being self-deprecating. Oh, no. But, uh, I've learned it now. I caught myself doing it, talking to a promoter at a gig. Uh, uh, you know, someone saying, uh, you know, uh, uh, 20 minutes of stand-up is the basic unit of stand-up comedy. So I'd done, a, I'd done an open open spot for someone, which is where you do sort of 10 minutes in the middle of a show. And if you do well, then you... That well, you'll probably get rebooked to do another 10 minutes, frankly, and then another one after that for no money. But sometimes <laughs> you'll get booked to do a 20 and you'll get paid, which is nice. Um, and so he said to me, do you have 20 minutes? And I sort of said, oh, well, well, no, so, sort of. And he said, well, OK, well, come back to me when you've got 20. And I'd say, no, 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 no. I was just being self-deprecating. I've got a really good 20. <laughs> I, I, it just it was a reflex that I sort of, yeah, disparagingly implied that I didn't really have a 20. I've definitely got a 20. Oh, I, I can. Um, I, and I, I had I to catch myself that. doing that because I've done that so many times. And and which is uh, more kind of terrifying, de dealing with Kickstarter backers or doing stand-up comedy on a Friday or Saturday <laughs> night for 20 um, minutes? <laughs> well, stand-up drunk people at stand-up shows don't have extremely strong opinions about DRM, and so they are slightly easier to deal with. <laughs> um, also, you're not contractually obliged to deliver anything to them, and they can be kicked out by security if they go too far. Um, I think people are people are overly afraid of. Uh, stand-up i think people think it's a lot more frightening than it is um because the it's horrible to die on stage and it happens to all comedians and you sort of imagine that it only happens to bad and mediocre comedians oh, it happens but to they, everybody i'm sure yeah but when you when you when you when you do it you see good comedians have bad gigs and that is um lovely obviously because it's nice to know that um even you know even people who are really really good have bad days uh, but also to realize that um, the, the the factors that make something not work 
are not necessarily contained within the comedian's performance. It could be what happened earlier in the gig. It could be the the way the room's laid out. It could be the fact that there's a a table full of uh, drunk solicitors in the front row who just uh, are facing the wrong way. All of these different factors can destroy the gig and make somebody with the magical power of being funny completely powerless. And uh, but but one of the things you realize is that the thing that we're most terrified of public humiliation is actually fine. It's okay. Like nothing bad happens to you. You just get embarrassed and then you do it again and then it goes better the next time, maybe. Um, Like obviously having a bad gig over in front of someone important who, who, you know, who might have given you an important review or or a career opportunity. That's bad. That is bad. Your Highness. (laughs) But the um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, You don't want to bomb on the Royal Variety performance. Not that they're asking me to do it. Uh, I'm a Republican. Like, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Prince Philip is an avid listener. Oh, I'm uh, sure he did Adventure yeah, Games yeah. podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, he's, he's big on that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, but that, but you realise that being humiliated in front of people itself is not actually that bad, and also can have a sort of um, a, maybe masochistic enjoyment to it. It's all, it can become amusing how badly a gig goes, and you see people starting to enjoy that, and sometimes through that find a way to win a crowd over because it can happen. And it does happen. Mm-hmm. And when it does, it's it's fantastic. Um, I'm not great at that, but I've seen it happen. But yeah, it, the, but the, it's it's not it's not nearly as frightening as people say it is. That's okay. not the hardest thing about it, I think. That's good to know. I mean, without getting political, but certain politicians kind of humiliate themselves every time they speak, and they're supported. <laughs> They've got a ton of supporters. <laughs> not mentioning any names, of course, but no, 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 we, no. We, we've got them here in Ireland as well. We've got our own crazy, so. <laughs> But, uh, but no, with, I mean, with me, I am not a comedian. You probably have guessed that if you listen to this podcast. But anytime when I try to make a joke, when I try to be funny and I tell, you know, a bad joke, you know, people generally don't laugh. But then I always unintentionally make people laugh when I'm trying to be serious. So, yeah. Which, <laughs> well, I think it's the, 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 the places in which humor are acceptable. And in Britain and Ireland, I think humor is acceptable in lots of spaces. I think that's that's one of the nice things about our culture. Um, mm. Like we have this stereotype that Germans don't have a good sense of humor, but which is do. nonsense, which is nonsense. You've do. never met a German who, who didn't immediately start talking to me about how good Blackadder is. And maybe that's just the ones I've met. But um, they're right, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, or the and uh, what towers is it? Towers and that 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 thing they show at Christmas with the drunk butler every year that I can't remember the name of. Um, which uh, what's it called? Uh, oh, I can't remember. Uh, same as next year, madam. The Germans listening will know what I'm talking about. It's an incredibly <laughs> famous thing in Germany that we don't have over here uh, for some reason. Um, but but the th- but the weird thing is that humor is appropriate in less situations in in Germany. So you'd be less likely to make uh, a. a make a joke in a business meeting whereas right. <laughs> in a business meeting in britain i think uh, you know a joke would probably be perfectly normal you know and, and uh, we tend to react with uh, to, to everything with sarcasm you say oh it's just started to rain oh fantastic there are presumably there are countries in the world where you, you might respond to that with oh that's annoying but we don't we decide to go in with a form of humor which is uh, not hilarious but it's just that we use humor in lots of situations. And so this is why I think we ha- we have the idea that our sense of humor is brilliant. I, I hope it's OK for me to in- include Ireland in with Britain there. I know that politically there is some issues. <laughs> I mean, we, we are kind of similar in, in a lot of ways as well. Um, you know, but in this, ca- in this case, I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so uh, rename. <laughs> 
reunification is off the table. I'm glad we've uh, we've sorted that out. Um, yeah, no. you you can keep Northern Ireland for now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, I'm joking. If you listen to the news in in, in the the the, uh, the Brexit papers. We are less than enthusiastic about Northern Ireland at the moment. Uh, so, so many British right wingers suddenly in favour of a united Ireland. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Based on it, absolutely no research. But it's it's kind of funny how because even you know at the time of Brexit, I didn't even think of Northern Ireland. Then when I thought, oh yeah, the border, yeah, how are they going to do that? <laughs> Because like Ireland is still the EU and that's still part of Britain. That's going to cause problems. But then if you do have a border, there'll be another civil war. So yeah, armed guards on the border. What could possibly go wrong? Uh huh. Wow, it really got so, political after you said. Let's wow, that, that escalated very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'll probably keep that in. Just <laughs> just to kind of annoy the old right people. I'm not sure if any of them do listen to this podcast, but I'm sure uh, I'll find out. Get an, get, I get into arguments with a few of the old, uh, few of the old slightly reactionary adventure game fans. They do exist, and, yeah. and, and I just want to say, you're not welcome. Get out of my hobby. I hate you. <laughs> exactly. No, I love you all. I want as many listeners as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, you can keep listening to the podcast, but I, no, I, no, I, I agree. No, I, I hate um, you. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm similar. But and anyway, I, actually, that leads me on to something that I wanted to say about um, Adventure X. Um, because yeah, sure, we can talk about that now if you want, since you're one of that's the, all right. the organizers. Yeah, we've so you've, you made two two games, Nelly, Kutalot, Spoonbeaks, Ahoy, and which will be out this Thursday. Well, it's already out by the time we've, this interview will be. Yes, 23rd out. of May. Yeah, and then Nelly Kutalot, the Foul F- Fleet, is also yes. on Steam. I did, I, did some, I did some writing on unforeseen incidents. Uh, I did. The, I worked on the English script for unforeseen incidents, which is. Uh, 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 it is. It is a funny game, but it's. It's more mm-hmm. of a dark, mysterious comedy with with humorous elements. Which is um, made by uh, German developers, right? Made by German developers, yes. <laughs> so. Um, and so, yeah. My, so my job was uh, uh, making all the German jokes less funny because they were so hilarious. And no, that sounded really sarcastic. Please cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it to sound sarcastic. It's, it's written by uh, Marcus Baumer uh, in German, who's very, very funny and a uh, very good writer. And we worked, we collaborated together on the script. Um, so uh, I didn't translate it. Um, I, he prob- the game was probably about half written in German and half written in English and then translated back and forth. Um, so there is no original language. Um, <laughs> people want to know which language they should play it in, which one's the original. There isn't one. We wrote it in English and German simultaneously. Um, which works surprisingly well, and more games should do it. Um, I, but what I want to say about Adventure X is um, it's a, a, an annual event in London. Um, the last two year, the last year and this year, it's uh, taking place at the British Library in November. This year, it's on the second and third of November. Uh, tickets haven't gone on sale yet, but they will go on sale. And uh, at this point, we're accepting. In fact, at the point where your podcast will go out, we're accepting uh, submissions for. Um, people who want to exhibit their games or speak at the event and uh, you can go to the website uh, www. do you still have to say that i don't know uh, www.adventureexpo uh, so a d v e n t u r e e no I've, no i've said it wrong ah forget it i'll give the links <laughs> on the show notes anyway but Here's yeah adventureexpo.com yeah there's not two e's yeah. in it there's not two e's in it it's adventureexpo uh, right, .org. Yeah. .org. Oh, just org. Oops, sorry. <laughs> yeah, and you can find information about um, if you're if you're working on a narrative-driven game, and that's what we say: narrative-driven driven games. So point and clicks are very welcome, but we're also really keen to show interactive fiction, uh, visual novels, uh, exploration games, if you want to call them walking simulators, whatever whatever you want to call them. 
um, right, experimental yeah. games, um, not non-standard RPG type things uh, would would be welcome. We're not particularly looking for sort of uh, mainstream grindy grindy uh, character building things, but if you're doing something really interesting with story that has an RPG elements, uh, like um, for instance Unavowed, we'd be really interested in that. Um, so basically, yes, uh, uh, and the thing that. I'm enthusiastic uh, about in that event is that we create a very within a niche we create a very diverse welcoming friendly space which is full of sort of um, uh, uh, full of opportunities for people to be inspired by other developers so it's sort of somewhere between a fan event and a dev event um, and the the line between fan and dev is not clearly drawn and it's a really good opportunity for people to share ideas i mean you you've, you've been to the event so you, you know what it's like maybe i'm yeah, over I, I was no absolutely no i loved it i went for the first time last year and as i mentioned uh to get mentioned on this podcast before i could only go for one day because it was sold out and uh mm. so i went on the sunday i went crazily i went on one day you know i went in the morning from dublin to to england and then wow. i was without without really sleeping and then trying to play try playing it you know, a lot of adventure games without sleep is an interesting experience. <laughs> I would not recommend it. No. Well, I think that the the the, the good the, there are several good things about exhibiting at Adventure X, and we we every year we try and make the experience for exhibitors better uh, and give them you know more opportunity to show off their game. Um, and uh, the one thing we learned we hadn't been to the British Library before. The one thing we learned there was that when people arrived, they didn't know where the games were um, because they weren't immediately visible. Uh, and so this year there will be a map showing people wh- where the games are and encouraging people to explore all of the spaces. Because if there's one thing adventure game is like, it's being given a map. So <laughs> and a quest. And a, yeah, exactly. So I think if we can if we can if we can gamify the process of of meeting the developers, then that would be great. So I'm going to try and do that this year. Yeah. Do we have to um, solve any puzzles along the way to find? I don't know. The... <laughs> I, I was thinking of maybe you have to collect things. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm going crazy. I'm, no, no problem. Oh, I'll that try and think of some cool thing to encourage people to talk to all the devs. Um, but we don't charge exhibitors to exhibit AdventureX because because AdventureX isn't like one of the really big trade fairs where you'll pay hundreds and hundreds of pounds or euros or dollars uh, and then you've got a sales pitch and you're going to flyer a thousand people that day. It's a much smaller event. You're not going to flyer a thousand people, uh, but you're going to save hundreds of pounds getting a stall because we don't charge you to get a stall. What you will get is an audience of people who are specifically interested in the kind of thing you're doing. So you're you're not wasting your time flyering people who will never play a narrative game in their lives. You're flyering people who are really really interested, and will uh, if if you if you convince them, be passionate advocates for your game, and will be tweeting about it and writing about it and blogging about it and telling people about it, uh, and maybe giving you useful constructive feedback based on their knowledge, their sort of in depth knowledge of the of the genre you're working in. Uh, and we've had sort of game projects which have come out of AdventureX. You know, people have made, got career opportunities and people have got jobs and people have uh, come together and collaborated programmers and artists and things like that by meeting at AdventureX, which is delightful for us because, because uh, you know, I was talking about the way uh, I, I started talking about this because I was thinking about the way online spaces are often unfriendly. And, the, uh, and one thing that bothers me is the way that um, nerdy, nerdy things like, you know, capital G gamer attitudes are oh we were the bullied nerds and so we've now we've created a little enclave online where we can be the bullies and there's no girls allowed and all that sort of thing and i i hate that Mm -hmm. because the whole the whole point of nerdy hobbies 
is that everyone's welcome that they are a, a shelter from from the whatever you know from the bullying you got at school or whatever it is that, that, that's why that's why everybody starts with these sorts of hobbies uh, and the idea that you would try and turn that into your own little fiefdom where you can push people around and be the, uh, an alpha nonsense i hate that i can't mm-hmm. stand it and what i like about adventure x is that it, it's not like that um it's very um it's very non-hierarchical very welcoming and friendly it's like a, it's like a big meetup of creative people with interesting ideas to share no absolutely i mean before we get to some of the questions from developers about it i just want to say as well that this podcast originated in adventure x there well there you go another another wonderful creation of adventure i I hadn't actually planned i mean i had wanted to start uh, a podcast i was thinking originally of doing like a a book podcast trying to be authors but then there's like a million of those podcasts and then I was I was looking actually for adventure games podcasts with adventure game news and interviews with current developers. And while there are other great podcasts, um, you know, the Point and Click Adventure podcast and the Backseat Designers, yeah. but there wasn't the podcast that I wanted. So I thought, oh, you know, I might start it. But I thought nobody would be interested in that. And there's no way that I'll be able to speak to developers, you know, people such as yourself that, you know, why would you? I'm, I'm not a developer. I'm not a journalist. But I went there and then I went to the developers like... Um, you know, Francisco Gonzalez and Livu Bohr and people like that. And I'd say, hey, so I'm taking serious podcasts. You probably will say no, but would you like to appear? And they all said, yeah. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I yeah. guess I better start this podcast. So it's, uh, and again, everyone there that I met was incredibly nice. You know, it was like people like Dave Gilbert and Charles Cecil interacting with the fans and talking to everyone. And like, you know, you know, they, they can talk. And, I, and I, when I spoke to Charles Cecil, I saw him there and I went, like oh my god it's Charles Cecil <laughs> and uh, but he was really really nice and everyone there was really really nice really passionate as well but really positive so I would recommend anyone listening to this and people go from all over the world right they go they do yes um in fact that's the the, the one thing that I, I should say that I haven't mentioned is that as well as people showing off games we also uh do talks uh mm. I know I did mention that because you can apply to speak. Um, and uh, the, the talks um, are, are always very interesting. Um, so uh, last year we had Ragnar Tornquist talking about uh, his upcoming game Draugen, um, the, the Fjord Noir. Uh, so uh, point and click fans will know uh, the longest journey, of course, and the, mm-hmm. the Dreamfall games. Um, but I think a good starting point, if, you, if you're interested in, in what the talks are like, is looking for John Ingold's talk about writing uh, yes. sparkling dialogue, which, uh, which was picked up by Kotaku and went sort of semi-viral. Oh, that uh, was amazing. It, and it really, it, it, he sort of, he very, very gently lays into um, uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey's uh, uh, dialogue system. But it could be the uh, dialogue system of any game, really, that mm-hmm. he was criticizing. This way that dialogue options are sort of picked off a shelf like choices yeah. rather than a conversation flowing the way a conversation flows. Um, and you, you can see his, his concept at work when you play um, uh, Heaven's Vault. Heaven's Vault yeah. but, but seeing him explain the process using Blade Runner as an example, trying to turn one of the scenes from Blade Runner into an interactive scene without it just being you clicking your way through a story um, is uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, no, I'd love to speak to him some, sometime, but it, it was absolutely great. It, it's really eye-opening that... That it, I really thought, wow, that could be possible because I, I full of stuff that, that should have been obvious. Yeah. Full of stuff where you're thinking, how has nobody mentioned this before? 
Yeah. It's, it's, it's things as obvious as um, uh, Ron Gilbert's observation that you shouldn't be stuck in Las Vegas because you forgot to pick up a pencil in New York. The kinds of problems <laughs> that used to plague adventure games. Something that, that should have been obvious, but wasn't immediately obvious. And exactly. uh, Ingold's approach to how conversations work. Of course, how is there almost, in interactive fiction there has been, but how have almost no games managed to make conversations feel like conversations? Yeah, uh, I, I think know that. I haven't played Oxenfree, but I feel like Oxenfree probably has achieved this, and and a few a few have. But how is it not the normal? How is it not the norm? That's the remarkable thing. Exactly. And can, can uh, is it just uh, developers that can give talks, or can it nearly anybody involved in the adventure genre talk? Nearly anybody uh, could give okay. a talk. Um, but uh, it, the, the the we only have about ten slots, so they are hotly contested. Um, and we frequently have to turn away people with really, really, really good people with really good talks, um, because otherwise we could just have exactly the same people talk every year because people come back to us with really great ideas. And we have to say, oh, but we had you last year, so we'll have to have someone else this year. Right. Um, but but we're we're really keen to sort of diversify the kinds of things we hear about. Um, so, uh, for instance, last year we had um, Ranjani Natarajan talking about um, uh, Zombies Run that make a board game version of the the mobile game Zombies Run, which she was the producer of, which is uh, not exactly in the area that we've been in before, because it's not uh, you know it's not a, a narrative driven video game, but it's got lots of it gives an interesting perspective on story based games that we wouldn't have because it's always good to learn things from other genres. So getting something like that in, which is just and here's something which is a slight a slight, uh, a slight um, curveball that might spark ideas. Uh, from someone or someone might be sitting in the audience and think i've just realized that what i thought was a point and click game is actually a tabletop uh game and i'm going to make a board game instead or something like that so trying to get a, a range of ideas and try and try and spark ideas and make the the, the talks complement each other is the big thing but yes any, anybody with something really interesting to say we've had um we've had journalists we had um mark brown who uh who runs the game makers toolkit youtube channel which is i think one of the best um uh selections of video essays uh for game developers Uh, he talked to us about detective games and extensively about the obra din um he did a sort of expansion of his um very good talk on uh detective games that's on it on his youtube channel um and yeah i'm 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 rambling yeah (laughs) no no you're it's it's very interesting that uh again with the talks with all the different topics and uh you know just to mention as well that uh, Dave Gilbert gave a talk as well about his game Unavowed, and what was particularly interesting was how he used dialogue as well. That how or interaction between the characters that he yes that he made his characters be positive to each other rather than snarky, which is how a lot of well fiction in general like stories are with to try and generate humor that they have yes. characters who are kind of snarky with each other. And he gave examples, but then he gave examples of how he changed it and how it worked pretty well. Uh, I would say, and uh, so that's really definitely very interesting. Well, that made, uh, I, I want to say one of the, yeah that 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 made me one of the things with uh, working on unforeseen incidents, working on the characters with Marcus, um, because unforeseen incidents is a is a classic point of click adventure game, mm. and uh, the protagonist uh, Harper is uh, is at least to begin with you meet him he's something of a of a familiar protagonist he's a bit of a schlub he's 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 going nowhere he's a man. And he's not got a lot going on in his life. He's a bit of a loser. And the the stock adventure game character is is that 
uh, a young-ish guy who's a little bit of a loser. I wonder where adventure game <laughs> designers get these ideas from. Um, and so that you know, so looking at original design documents, we thought, okay, well, we've got to do a lot of work to individualize Harper and make him um, a, a character. But the question is, we want humor in the game. We want dark humor. So is Harper going to go around being snarky to everyone? Is this going to be like a Deponia game? Is is this guy a loser and a wanker? Uh, and I, yeah. my argument was no. Mm. So uh, so he uh, it, it, that Harper uses humor um, self-deprecatingly and he uses mm. it as a defense mechanism. So when he's scared and he often is scared because scary things happen in the story, he uses humor to make himself feel better. He uses humor to uh, uh, to protect himself. Uh, he 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 picks up every object he finds that's useful because he's um, he's a hoarder of, of of gadgets and a handyman. So we tried to we tried to make uh, come up with character just reasons for him to do the things that an adventure game protagonist would need to do, so that he's not just picking up all this stuff because it's for the no game. <laughs> he's picking it up because it's in character for him to do that. Because when he sees a half broken TV, he thinks I could repair that because he's a guy who repairs old tvs and then he does repair the old tv and the 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 thing that i've noticed because i've read all of the reviews and most of them (laughs) most of them really like harper and most of them Mm -hmm. really like the humor in the game but the the decisive factor in whether or not you like the game is if you liked harper because there's a, a few reviews and a few comments and the consistent factor is that they didn't like him and we didn't manage to win those people around. They didn't find him likable. They didn't find his humor appropriate. They wanted him to go through the mystery being very somber instead of going through the mystery, um, you know, being um, a, a little bit uh, off the wall. And, and they didn't like the character. Uh, but but the the consistent, uh, the, the vast majority of the feedback has been people saying it was nice to play an adventure game where the protagonist wasn't a dick. Uh, and nice. I, I or wasn't a douche that's a very common one i think dick was my friend i said to marcus we'd want to make a game where the main character isn't a dick and so many people come back saying you, it's nice to play a game where the main character isn't a douchebag and um that's that is that is exactly what we wanted people to feel which is actually this guy he's he's an everyman character um but we want you to really like him by the end of the game we want you to really care about him because he feels like a, a rounded person uh, who isn't just a means for delivering jokes to you and isn't just a means for you to go around being rude to the other characters we've invented. Right, yeah, because that seems to be a, a trope of adventure games. There are many adventure games where the main character is, as you say, well, both a dick and a douche. And now, of course, you know, you know, not every character has to be goody two-shoes, but, you know, my issue with so many games, like, you know, you mentioned Deponia and even... Simon the Sorcerer. The two Sorry, games. Simon. Yeah. Simon I know. I, no, I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed those games that were very well made and all, but I just felt that the main characters were too much uh, of, you know, too too rude, kind of, that it was hard to kind of get on board with them. But then, um, you know, a game like Gabriel Knight, where we shouldn't like this character. He's a womanizer. He's not very, doesn't treat his friends very well, but we still like him. We still root for him. And yes. And Gabriel still... Knight's a well-rounded character. And, exactly. And he so, is charming. And he charms us just like he charms the other characters exactly. he meets. And even though he does some pretty bad things. And another game which I've played recently, which I will talk about in more detail, is St. Christopher School oh, uh, Lockdown. Sorry, yes, Saint by Lenny Berry. Yes, that the main character, again, is fascinating that she does some pretty bad things and it goes to some very dark areas. 
that normally we would think, oh my God, you know how we would like to put this character, but we still root for her. We still want her to get out of the situation and to do well. So, and that's a testament to the writing as well. That it's very difficult to do, but yeah, it's it's it'd be nice you know to play a character as well who's just a nice guy or a nice yeah. person. Well, because I think I think because for instance in the in in Nelly in the Nelly games, Nelly is rude to quite a lot of people, but she really? is, she is still a she's a nice character, but she's very disrespectful towards authority, and she keeps running into bullies in the games, and okay. she's consistently extremely disrespectful towards those bullies. Um, but she's not a bully. She never she never bullies anyone else. So she, mm. you could say she's a goody two, two shoes. But there's actually quite a lot of mean jokes that she makes at other people's expense. However, those people all all deserve that. Before we finish up, just some questions from uh, one or two of the developers who I've spoken to. Uh, be- when you're submitting uh, an application to exhibit your game, when, so when you submit the application, do you need to have a trailer or a demo at that time, or can you wait till can you submit them later? Because I do know one or two developers who, right now at the time of this recording, don't have any demos or trailer, but they say that they will have demo and a trailer uh, on September and possibly October, is that too late for them to it, submit? It is, I'm afraid. We don't need. We don't uh, require. We don't require a trailer um, okay. at this point. Although it's strongly encouraged because a trailer is a good way of communicating to us how the game is supposed to be played. Um, and when games are in beta, our experience of playing it isn't always the same as what you can show off in a trailer. And you can show more of the story than we can experience in a trailer. So a trailer is recommended um, if you've got. Okay. But uh, demo-wise, we do ask for demos during during the submission period, which uh, is open now and closes on June 9th, I think. Uh, I don't have a window open in front of me, so I can't check that. Um, the, the reason for that is um, that it's very easy to have a really good idea for a narrative game, uh, and it's much, much harder to actually make it. And we in the past we, well basically we we need to be certain that there's going to be something substantial to show in november and right. people and obviously people can give assurances but nothing is as good an assurance as us having seen a beta of the game and seen what it looks like so far we don't expect the demo to be a a publicly playable demo we don't expect it to be the kind of demo you will be showing off in november you know so we're happy to have pop-ups that say and now an animation happens for this or okay, whatever. So okay. that right. sort of thing is fine because we know what a beta, we know what an alpha version i should say we know what an alpha looks like um what we want to know is what's the writing like what's this what kind of game is is it how, how does it play what's the concept behind it uh, what's the artwork looking like um we're, we're happy for there to be gaps and unfinished things you can put in explanation explanatory text to explain the missing bits but we want to have a sense of um does how one of the things we ask in the application is at what state of completion will your game be in november and that could be it could be half finished it could be released by then um, but if you say that your game's going to be released by then, and then your your alpha doesn't have any graphics whatsoever, we'll right. be a bit skeptical of you. Um, but as long as you're being realistic and sensible, then that's fine. But what we need to know is this isn't vaporware. We want to know that it's a real game. It's getting made. We know these things all take much longer than they're supposed to, but we need to know that something is happening. Right. No, that that sounds fair enough. And and then is there a limit to the amount of exhibitors that you have uh, do you reject many applicants because i know that there's some one or two developers who might have been a bit concerned about that thing we've never made an adventure game before it's our first 
game. So do you have um, you know priority to any particular developers or? We we do reject people uh, because we have limited spaces. So um, we have usually between 20 and 25 exhibitors, um, which is quite small. Um, and the the event, uh, I think it's about the uh, about the same number of exhibitors as we had when we were based in Goldsmiths, which was our previous venue. However, the number of people who uh, who come now has increased. So we're, we're keeping the same number of developers and we're increasing the number of visitors, uh, which ought to have a good player to exhibitor ratio um and the i forgot what the question was <laughs> <laughs> so do, so yeah so you you reject uh applicants. Oh, yeah. so is there, what, is there what any kind of priority as well uh, uh, yeah well, so no this we don't um we don't fast track anyone um so uh, i mean uh yeah look if dave gilbert sent a game to exhibit we probably accept it but uh he doesn't because he you know he doesn't need to uh, because he's usually there giving a speech anyway, um, yeah. but uh, but there, but there's no standard fast tracking system. Uh, when we when we get the games, we wait until all the games come in and uh, we play test all of them. We we try to make sure that uh, games are tested by more than one person. We've got a team of people who are going to be uh, testing those games uh, and uh, and feeding back on them. And based on the last two years, well over the last. It, we're still receiving applications at the moment, so I don't know how many we're going to get. But over the last three years, it's gone from sort of like a two-to-one ratio, where you would have had a 50-50 chance of getting in, probably, to a less good ratio. So I think we had something like 79 submissions last year, wow. and, and I think I think we had 22 spaces. So that's you sort of a four-to-one. Um, ratio of applicants to uh, acceptances, uh, which is still, you know, it, it's not appalling. That's not a terror. That's not terrible. But what that means is uh, we're really only going to want to show games that um, that we're we like and we're enthusiastic about. It also means that we turn away games that we really like, but for one reason or another, have decided not to show this year because it um, because it's not a vast and expansive uh, exhibit exhibition hall we have. It's a curated selection of the narrative games that we liked this year and what that means is if we've accepted one really good animal themed detective game this year we might not accept two other animal themed detective games because there's a lot of animal themed detective games at the moment not a criticism but there are a lot and uh, you know if we've accepted one thing which is use which uses um like you know black and white pixel art we might not accept two more games that accept that we might have to pick our favorite one that that um that fills certain roles in order to create a balance um and uh and that is un that shouldn't reflect badly upon the game being rejected doesn't mean that we like we don't like your game and it doesn't mean that we won't accept that your game uh, adventure eggs in the future it just means that we uh, it didn't fit into our official selection for this year. Does that does that answer that question? Yeah, yeah, very much so. And uh, then if if a game is say uh, rejected, uh, is there is it possible for the developer then to well uh, maybe get tickets and then go with a laptop and show his or her game as well? Would that be acceptable or would that be frowned upon? There is some. It's it's bordering on a frowning scenario. Okay. Um, so uh, obviously we we want developers to to get tickets and to come along and to talk about their game, uh, you know. And we have, after the event we always go to the to we we hire a local pub 
and uh, and uh, everyone has a few drinks and uh, it's a very relaxed space for people to talk about their ideas and share their stuff. We're totally happy for people to bring laptops and, uh, and, and tablets and things and show off what they're working on. But what we don't really like is when people set up um, sort of pirate stalls of their own uh in in the uh communal areas saying oh here's my little my little enclave where i'm doing my game uh, we we do frown upon that and volunteers running the event will ask you to not do that so if you've got a laptop in your bag and someone says what's the game and you whip it out and you hold it on your arm and you show someone something for 10 minutes and then maybe that happens again later on in the day we won't complain about that if you want to if you you know if you're going if you've got your your ipad out in the pub and you're saying this is the game what do you think we we think that's totally cool but um, because it is a curated selection, it isn't fair to the exhibitors who have gone through that process for people to be able to just come up and set their own stalls up in the space. And also, if we allowed that, everyone would do it and there'd uh-huh. be no space for anyone to play any games because we'd all be sitting there trying to sell our own games. <laughs> no, that that makes uh, perfect sense. And are podcasts allowed? <laughs> yes, yes, podcasts are, are welcome. Now, we regularly have people... Uh, with webcams and uh, um, and microphones, recording things and interviewing people. Uh, yes. Okay, that's. Uh, we we usually um, or, or we are we are we are getting better at uh, emailing the exhibitors with lists of uh, press who will like to speak to them. Uh, it's not the largest event in the world, and we don't attract um, you know huge names when it comes to press. But we're always keen to get as much as possible when it comes to you know. Um, specialist websites and blogs and podcasts um so for you and other people with an interest in these sorts of things send us an email and uh, with your contact details if you want us to share it with the exhibitors when the time comes and we will do that and you can make appointments with them to to interview them and find out what their what their game's about cool okay well i look forward to to going hopefully i, I intend to get the tickets anyway <laughs> this time for both days Oh yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll do it uh, in advance and you know plan it out much better than last year. Um, but I think that's that we've covered everything. We've been here an hour and a half, which wow, yeah, sorry about flown that. Flown by? No, no, it's flown by. So um, uh, I'll let you take us out then. So if there, well, first of all, where can people find you online? Oh, uh, if you if you want to look at for me, I am on Twitter at Mister Abk, but it's spelt out. It's at M I S T E R A B K. Uh, you can find my website uh, abeckettking.com, A-B-E-C-K-E-T-T-K-I-N-G.com. Um, and uh, yeah, you can Google uh, Nelly Kutelot, which is impossible to spell or pronounce. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible choice of a name for a protagonist. Um, I, I regret it deeply. Um, uh, yeah, basically, if you go through any uh, I, at N Kutelot, uh, N-C-O-O-T-A-L-O-T, we'll find Nelly on Twitter. Um, and uh I've got long red hair and a beard, so I'm quite recognisable. So if you if you see someone who you think might be in the street, come up and say hello, because it might be me. I live in London. Okay, and you also do comedy gigs, which people can attend to as well. That's on yes, the there's gigs on the website, so you can go and see you can go and see gigs on the website. Oh, if you want, I forgot about this, uh, I'm doing a, a solo show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this year. So if you want to see uh, a show called The Interdimensional ABK, uh, which has a, a whiz-bang animated introductory uh animation theme tune that you can watch on my twitter um then i'm doing that at the uh at the, the pleasance this this edinburgh fringe in august so if you're there please come along and see my show cool look forward to it hopefully well, i don't know if i can make it but if you can i, <laughs> I mean there's, there's like ten thousand people in the city 
who come to see it. So uh, there should be enough, but just spread the word is what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, and then your game, Nelly Kutalas, then they're available on Steam, as we said. Um, are they available on other platforms, or do you plan you want to make, want to make them available on other platforms? Um, we, we always want to make them available on more platforms. They're not on good old games, much much to my uh, sadness. Um, they're, they're not. Um, maybe one day they will be, but uh, so far they're not. Um, but the Foul Fleet is available on lots of other platforms uh, and, uh, and on mobile. Um, uh, so it's on the mobile app stores. Um, at the moment, uh, Spoonbeaks Ahoy is just going to be on Steam for the time being, as far as I know. Uh, but it, who knows? It, it, it may go in other places. If Foul Fleet is available direct from the publishers and you can have a standalone executable version of that, which unlocks with a serial number, but does no other DRM than just a serial number. It doesn't phone home or do any of that stuff. For the, so for the people who are obsessed with DRM, then that's an option for you if you don't like Steam. Uh, at the moment, uh, it's just Steam for Spoonbeaks Ahoy, but we'll have to wait and see. Okay, yeah. Well, best of luck with the release. I'm sure, I'm sure people will enjoy it. I, I really enjoyed the original anyway. So, So yeah, I think that's that's it for me. Is there? To, uh, do you want to take us out there? Is there anything else you want to say to the people listening, to developers, or to anybody at all? That that's everything from me. Uh, thank you very much for having me. My name has been. I don't know why I've said my name has been. It still is. <laughs> my name has been and still is Alistair Baker King. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. So best of luck. Thank you. So that was my interview with Alistair Baker King. I hope you enjoyed it. He's a very very funny person and a very nice person as well who does really a lot for the adventure game community so i hope that was particularly interest to developers and people going to the adventure x conference that we found out a little bit about behind the scenes and how it's organized and what people can do if they want to exhibit their games if they just want to turn up and so so make sure to check out his game which was released this week, Nelly Kutunat Spoonbeaks Ahoy HD Remaster. And so that's it for this week. Next week I'll be joined by Tomas Bex once again, where we'll be talking about, well, a number of adventure games, uh, internet connection permitting. Uh, so we'll be talking about Clam Man, uh, Guard Duty, The Death of Aaron Myers, and hopefully the St. Christopher School's Lockdown. Uh, maybe one or two others as well. We'll see how much time we have next week so until then take care everyone bye so if you like the adventure games podcast then please subscribe rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts please leave a review on itunes if you can as every review helps and reviews will help get the word out especially for adventure game developers who appear on the podcast now you can also follow me on social media you can follow me on twitter at advent game pod you can follow me on facebook at adventure games podcast you can also follow me on instagram at adventure games podcast as well and we're also on discord at adventure games podcast so if you are a venture game developer or a venture game player you can follow us there so again please feel free to retweet and share podcast episodes and the podcast to people who you believe may enjoy it and you can also find more information about the podcast on www.adventuregamespodcast.com so until next time thank you Thank you.